Is it possible that the common cold could prevent SARS-CoV-2 replication and infection? What is the real-world impact of this? In this episode of The Review, we answer these questions and more with Dr. Kieran D, a postdoctoral researcher in the Mercier Group at the Centre for Virus Research. Welcome to The Review. I'm Anna Kirk and I'll be your host for this episode. Hello and welcome to The Review, Kieran. Congratulations on the paper. Thank you. So today we'll talk about your recent publication from the Journal of Infectious Diseases, where you are investigating virus-to-virus interactions, and specifically the competition that occurs in the respiratory epithelium between SARS-CoV-2, the virus of the hour, and rhinovirus, and how they impact each other's replication. I wonder if first we could begin discussing the background that led up to this project and why you decided to look into virus interactions concerning SARS-CoV-2. So this project was really funded. The impetus for it was funded off the back of paper that was published by Seema Nikbash and, and Pablo back in 2019, where Seema had access to loads and loads of samples and NHS uh, data where they had analyzed people who had presented with infections and who were PCR positive. And they had, they had that data gone all the way back to, I think, like 2010. So essentially, she just had this huge data set of people who were positive for viruses, which were picked up in, in the screen that was that was done by the NHS, which I think screened for about PCR, screened for maybe over 10 respiratory viruses. So there was a huge data set. And then what you could do is kind of mine into how many single positives you have, how many double positives you have, how many triple positives you have. And then using stats, you can kind of pick out, well, are some... Over, are some of those groups overrepresented? Are some underrepresented? So what Seema showed quite nicely in her paper was that at the epidemiological level, so the total number of detections of viruses, there seems to be this um, negative interaction between flu and rhinovirus. So the kind of rhinovirus season is as schools are getting back and leading up through autumn into winter. And then after that, it becomes a flu season. So year on year out, um, what she saw, and she saw this with other viruses, but um, specifically, uh, I'm, I'm just using the flu and rhino as an example, was that you'd have, you'd have rhinovirus infections um, that would then be misplaced by flu infections. So as the, pop, as, as the number of rhinovirus PCR detections in the population went down, the flu detections went up. And then as well as that, uh, with the the detection, so so there seems to be year in year out, um, there seems to be a negative interaction between flu and rhinovirus because as one goes down, one comes up, and then at the in host level, so you know these these screens can pick up up to ten viruses, so you'll be able to pick up if one's singly positive or one's doubly positive. So then you can you can say okay right, out of this huge cohort. How many are being detected for flu and rhinovirus? How many are being detected for flu alone? How many are being detected for rhinovirus? And again, using stats, it's it looked like flu and rhinovirus were underrepresented. Um, so it seemed that at the in-host level, you're seeing fewer than you would expect to see flu and rhinovirus co-infections. So that really, that observation, and that was that was published in 2019 in PNAS, that really was the impetus for my project which was to come in and just essentially 
try and find in the lab if there are any any of these virus virus interactions and and with that scope it was to set up a 3d uh, airway respiratory epithelial system in the lab as well which took me quite a while okay and I guess this was quite different stuff from what you did in your PhD or did it lead on quite nicely from that uh, in a sense so uh, it, it led on quite nicely in that I would have been I'd be looking at respiratory viruses and I'd be dealing with these with these airway cultures, which I had kind of passing experience with as, as a result of my PhD. So in my PhD, we got them in commercially as opposed to growing them up from you know liquid nitrogen stocks. Uh, so I kind of I knew how to handle them and to be gentle with them and how to wash them and everything like that, but um, nowhere near the the kind of ground up that I that I'd need. Well, from reading the paper and also your internal seminar that you gave recently, that was really great. It seems like you got some incredibly interesting and quite consequential results. So would you like to elaborate a little on the key findings? So, I mean, essentially what we've seen is that in these tissues and in the context of a co-infection with rhinovirus, SARS-CoV-2 replication seems to be quite significantly hindered when co-infecting with a rhinovirus. So that's, that's I mean, I suppose that's the main result of that in these tissues and within a 48-hour time frame, if, if, you, if there is a co-infection event, uh, rhinovirus will block SARS-CoV-2 replication now. It's, it's very tempting, especially for me, to, to kind of then extrapolate from that and say what might happen in in vivo, but I mean, we've no, we've no way of, of knowing that. Uh, so, I mean, whether or not it might be interesting to do animal models with this, I mean, that remains to be seen, but that definitely isn't a, a conversation that we've had. It's, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting result, and it's also one that agrees with work that Ellen Foxman in Yale University is doing. She, did, she had a really nice paper from her group where they, they showed that rhinovirus blocked flu in, in, these, in these respiratory tissues as well. And, and she's also got, uh, she has a, a manuscript in MedArchive as well, um, looking at SARS and rhinovirus kind of interactions as well. Oh, nice. I think the thing I found most shocking is that even when you were infecting with SARS-CoV-2 24 hours before introducing rhinovirus, the rhinovirus could still have like such a competitive effect. It blocked SARS-CoV-2 replication. Yeah, I was, I, was really, I was really happy to see that result. I mean, because doing it the other way around, you know, everyone could have guessed what the result would have been like that, because, I mean, at the same time, rhinovirus blocks it. But, as yeah, I was very happy to see to see that result, that even when you give SARS a 24-hour head start, you come in with rhino, rhino just ruins the party in, in the tissue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's actually what I'm doing at the moment now, setting up an experiment where we're looking at 72 hours with rhinovirus and horse fees. So I've infected some cultures on Tuesday, with with SARS-CoV-2 and then and now it's 72 hours later so so more yeah. to come hopefully yes yeah, so we'll, we'll see it'll be it'll be interesting and as well as that I mean because this this experiment will be going then to um till next Friday so I mean we don't even know what what the what the growth curve of SARS looks like in these tissues past a week exciting times still for yes. the project yeah I was also really impressed because you had such a far-reaching impact with the project which I guess is almost a dream for all scientists. How does it feel to have got your research into news outlets such as the BBC? Oh it's oh it's amazing you know you don't really expect that because I mean I spent my, my PhD project was on influenza variant morphology which is the kind of thing I think that only virologists and even a certain type of virologist will, will, will find interesting. So the, yeah the, the idea that you know work that you've done 
is then being reported by, by the BBC um, is, is very, very cool. And I think I was looking at it because I couldn't help myself on Twitter. I was just seeing, you know, seeing, seeing how it was going. And it was, you know, I think there was a New York Post article about that too. And I immediately texted my girlfriend, just like, ah, oh, the New York Post as well. So yeah, that was, that was, that was quite nice. Yeah, I, I think just um, just good timing, really. You know, it's it's um, everyone's talking about SARS-CoV-2, really. And it's it's a it's a nice, juicy headline that the common call can fight it, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. It's a nice thing to think about as well. Yeah. It's almost like the underdog coming through. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. And oh, man, um, Pablo showed me this wonderful handwritten letter that was addressed to him a few days after the, the BBC article, where it was just this, this lovely little sentiment um, that this this person had wrote, say, asking, had he ever, was he familiar with War of the Worlds? And the whole kind of ending to War of the Worlds was that they were taken out by by germs and microbes that their alien bodies weren't used to. And you might, the, the person who wrote this this letter was making that comparison oh, about, wow. about how the big bad can get um, knocked out by even the most banal thing. That is great. I know you said that you didn't entirely want to comment on the in vivo implications of this, but I think from a public health point of view, if you went back, say, a year and a bit ago today, if you were advising the government on a lockdown, do you think your advice would be the same? as what they gave at the time? Or do you think there's any possibility of, given the usual influence of rhinovirus in a year, do you think we'd have been able to keep the SARS-CoV-2 infection rate at bay or at least keep infections less severe? Oh, no, I, um, based, based on this research alone, absolutely not. It's too, this 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 is too artificial. And, and as well as that, I mean, because we, from the modelling, it it does it does then suggest that that will have an effect on SARS-CoV-2 transmission, but... No, I don't think it's it's that's it's far too much of a gamble, and there's far too much of a dearth of of evidence, I think, to have to have any impact on policy. Speaking of the mathematical modelling, do you want to give a little bit of further information about what you found through that? So that was all done by um, by Mark Maglin in Imperial College. So it's it's based on the proportion of rhinovirus infections at any given time in the population. And as well as that, the kind of refractory period that we that we describe in the paper. So, you know, we, we, we show this 48 hour window, but, you know, we don't know beyond that. So it's, it's, it's a model where the longer the refractory period as, as a result of rhinovirus infection. So say, say if you get a rhinovirus infection and you're then the refractory periods uh, induced because of that to SARS-CoV-2 infection, if, if that was about a week, and then if you have maybe say 0.5% of the, of the population who have a rhinovirus infection at that time, then you should see this effect on, on SARS-CoV-2 transmission. Now, I don't know, I couldn't speak to any of the, the math, mathematics behind that, but that's that's essentially the output of that model where using those those two parameters you should see an effect on on transmission right. assuming assuming that you know we would see this at the you know we would see this this in vivo there's no reason to think that we wouldn't but who's to say what the adaptive immune system will have yeah absolutely I just think it's a nice, it was a nice thought for me whilst reading the paper because I seem to have a cold all winter long. And so I thought, oh, this would be lovely. Protection. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, another slight thought experiment question. Do you think there is a possibility for SARS-CoV-2 to mutate or adapt to become a better competitor? Yes, I think is, is the short answer. 
So I'm convinced, um, and we haven't shown this, but that a huge part of the phenotype that we see, so why SARS is so negatively affected by rhinovirus is compared to other viruses in these tissues, it doesn't have as strong a uh, growth curve as, as other viruses. So so even in this paper, you look at rhinovirus, you've your peak of replication at 24 hours, and then in fairness, it does drop off. But your peak of replication is, is about 10 to the 8 TCID 50 per mil, and it's as early as 24 hours. And then you compare that to SARS replication by itself is you don't really see any virus coming out at 24 hours. You see a marginal amount of 48, and then you see your peak at 72, which then, which then plateaus. So you know, you compare that to flu or RSV or rhinovirus, the replication kinetics of all these viruses in these tissues, they're all quicker and stronger. So they have more robust infection profiles compared to, to SARS-CoV-2. So what, what I'm thinking and what I'm convinced of is a huge driver of this phenotype is just that it's, it's slow in these tissues. And it's, it's kind of, I keep thinking of it as a kind of spy where it's slow, and it's methodical and it's it's devastating, but it, it takes a while to get there. And rhinovirus is more like someone who turns up in a tank is it's immediately devastating, but you also immediately know it's there. So in terms of like antiviral signaling in the tissue and a protective effect as a result of that antiviral signaling, if you, if you, if you, if you have a, a, like something quiet that's, that's happening and then you have something loud that happens, it's it just everything shuts down. The tissue has this alarm that it then, it then shuts everything down. So SARS really doesn't have the time to do what it needs to do uh, in the context of a co-infection that it would have the, the time otherwise to do in a single infection. So, and I am getting back to the point, sorry, I went on a bit of a ramble there. As far as I can tell from what I've read of coronavirus replication kinetics in these tissues is they all seem to be quite similar where it's not, it's not that strong um, replication of say RSV, rhino or flu is they all seem to be a bit slower. You see a dip at 24 and you see a gradual increase then after that. So it seems to me from what I've read and, and from, from working with them in, in our own tissues is that coronavirus replication in these tissues is a bit slower. So in terms of mutation and adaptation to make it a better competitor and being able to, to fight rhinovirus, absolutely. If, if, it, if it then can start, if that those mutations then means it's, growing quicker in these tissues and it's it's generating more virus it's having a more robust infection so yes i think would be the answer to that great answer also i i suppose another way it could get around the issue so correct me if i'm wrong but is it true that the rhinovirus induces an interferon immune response and that is what is caused like creating a problem for the SARS-CoV-2 to replicate that's that's kind of what we what we're claiming in our paper is is so SARS absolutely it does have an immune response but we're we're talking about levels levels now so like um so in in the paper we show a time course of you know rhino infection at 24 hours 48 hours 72 and 96 we show SARS and we show mock infected tissues and we just stain for MXA which is mm -hmm just uh it's 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 a it's a strongly upregulated isg um you know there are there are hundreds of isgs but we kind of picked this one because it's it's a common one that is is usually expressed in response to respiratory viral infection we show that you know in the mock infected tissue 24 and up to 96 hours post-infection 
you don't see any MXA expression. So that's good. It means I didn't mess up the infections and accidentally infect things I wasn't supposed to. Um, with the rhinovirus, we see MXA uh, expression across the tissue, like strongly at 48 hours. We see it at 24 hours, but like it really, really like peaks, if you will. Um, you know, every cell is just glowing for MXA. Um, and at 24 hours, you're seeing it too. And then also 72 and 96 hours for rhinovirus. For SARS-CoV-2, you're really only starting to see detectable expression at 72 hours and then later at 96. And even then, it's, it's, or it's only in the pockets where we can see viral protein. It's not across the tissue like what we see for rhinovirus. So, I mean, that, if, if you know, if, if I was just, if money wasn't an issue and I was allowed to do what I was, whatever, whatever I wanted, I think that's, I'd spend a few years just looking at that and why, you know, why is it, why is it the rhinovirus infection you just see in this staining right across the tissue as early as 48 hours, but SARS is just quite slow. So yes, SARS, you know, SARS does induce an antiviral response, but it's nowhere near the, the, the scale and scope as that induced by rhinovirus using, with, with the caveat that um, uh, using MXA just as, a, as, as our only marker for that. I mean, there are hundreds of other ISGs. But as, as well as that, then in, in, in one of the other figures is, is that when, when we block uh, antiviral signaling um, using an IRF3 phosphorylation inhibitor, we then get wild type level of SARS replication in with, with a rhinovirus. So I think, I think we were able to claim then that, that this, this block to infection is as a result of antiviral signaling induced by rhinovirus and which ISGs, again, that would be an interesting project. Sounds like a very convincing argument to me. That actually leads me on really nicely into my next question, which is where do you see the research going following on from these results? So again, the experiment, what I'm doing at the moment is, so I've done pretty much everything, all the experiments that we've done for rhinovirus with RSV. And interestingly, it doesn't have, it, it does block it. It does block SARS replication and that block is dependent on antiviral signaling, but it's not as strong as what we've seen for rhinovirus. So for our synchronous infections, we saw like on the growth curve, you have your input virus and then it just goes through the floor. But for RSV, it comes up a little bit and then it goes down. So it, it, the, the blocking effect isn't, isn't as strong. So now we're doing these timings experiments where we're looking at, at 24 hours with RSV and 72 hours with RSV and rhinovirus. Following on from, from this paper is we'll, we'll essentially describe the kinetics of co-infections with SARS-CoV-2 with other respiratory viruses. So it'll be, it'll be, a, bit more, it'll be, it'll be a broader scope um, where, you know, for rhinovirus, we're just saying this is what happens with SARS-CoV-2 and rhinovirus. But now we're looking at you know other viruses. I'm gonna uh, so we've done RSV. We'll be looking at flu. We'll be looking at um, adenovirus, and then following on, we'll maybe start to try and and look at antiviral responses in the tissues, and maybe because if if we see degrees of inhibition or no inhibition at all, then that'll be that'll be something interesting to to, to dive into as well. Lots of work still to do. Yeah, do you think it could be possible that a similar uh, mechanism is happening at other sites of infection in the body as well as the respiratory epithelium. Uh, so like a, a systemic SARS-CoV-2 infection? Or with other viruses. Oh yeah. Um, 
I don't know, is I think the short answer to that. Um, but uh, yeah, at other sites in the body. Uh, yeah, I imagine, so, you know, the antiviral, antiviral response in tissues is, is a universal thing. And if, if you have virus A inducing an antiviral response and then there's an adequate amount of time for these cells to be a lot more refractory to, um, to be a lot less sensitive to infection, and then virus B comes in along, you would expect the virus B to have a much tougher time than, than, than otherwise. Yeah, I think definitely that sounds completely plausible. And then finally, we finished on some personal questions. So the first one that we ask everyone is, how did you get into this research area and your kind of career path up to this point? I got very lucky. I, I did a master's in virology that, you know, I, I, I just initially thought would be, okay, I'll just get a job because I wasn't getting anywhere with just my, um, my bachelor's. And then uh, viruses are just really, really cool. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll spend my career doing this. So then worked for a while just as a kind of research assistant and then as a virologist in um, a company that does clinical trials, mainly just assays, like either performing assays or assay development. Uh, then I did my PhD in Dublin on flu virion morphology. And that was a lot of fun. I mean, as fun as a PhD can be, ups and downs, lots of ups and downs, but I got through it and then, yeah, and just came here. You know, it was a postdoc where I could expand, you know, things that I wanted to expand on and also build upon core kind of things that I could bring to the job as well. So like there was, there, there was that bit of, oh yeah, I can, I can learn a bit, but also be able to do my job. Um, and then after this, I don't know, um, just be a postdoc for a while, I suppose, and see how it feels. And if, if I want to progress and if I'm lucky enough that I can get the opportunity to progress, we'll see. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like you've had quite a lot of experience. So what one piece of advice or multiple, if you have multiple, would you give to an early career researcher? Always try, always try to find what interests you. I find, I find that if, if you have, if you have that drive, if you are interested, that can get you through a lot of difficulty. And it can make the nice bits a lot better as well. So if, if you can always, if you can fi find and kind of isolate or identify what it is that interests you and what like you get excited about, like what you can't, like if, if you're lying in bed and you're just like, oh, I really can't wait to see the result of that experiment tomorrow. If you can find that, then that, that has been great for me, I think. Yeah, I guess that's the absolute dream. And all of virology is very interesting. So <laughs> you can find that nicely here. Okay. And finally, what would you do if you weren't a scientist? I've thought about this uh, and I think I'd be a mechanic. And then I told this to Daniel when the PhD students, he started laughing at me. He's like, here, and you can't even drive. But uh, I don't know. I like, I like the, I think what, what I like about this job is you're solving problems you know, um, and, and I think, well, I think the, the, on the face of it, um, that's kind of what mechanics do is, is they have an engine, they're presented with a problem, and they try and find a solution to, to solve that problem. And plus, you know, I can just work away in, in a garage, like working away in a garage, I think is quite similar to working away in a lab. I can see the similarities. Okay, great. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening and a special thank you to Kieran for his time. For any comments, tweet us at CVRinfo. 
You can also find previous episodes of The Review and our other podcasts at cvrblog.com, so make sure to go check those out.